Talking Books on News Talk 106 to 108. You know, I, again, I think it's a, it's, a, it's a question of choice. I mean, the worst case scenario and the one that perhaps we're headed toward is that we don't do anything about that. We don't try to stop the market from, you know, penetrating ever more deeply into, you know, our private lives and uh, our, you know, sort of day-to-day activities and our thoughts. And that's, I believe, the way that we're headed if we don't do something. I mean, the alternative to that, though, is to argue that, all right, we're never going to be free of a society that's at least partially narcissistic, but there is always the opportunity for individuals to change the way that they and their friends and family operate. And I don't think we, you know, we certainly can't wait for the political system to change our economy for us. I think it has to start with individuals. You know, so I wish I could say, well, you need, you know, you need to take these three steps. You need to elect Bernie Sanders as president of the United States, and you need to pass laws that you know tax Wall Street by 50%, and you need to make it illegal to give your children a smartphone until they're 15 years old. Those aren't the solutions, nor would they be politically feasible. It's not something that can happen from the top down, so it has to happen from the bottom up. So it begins with conversations like the one we're having right now that ideally provoke people to think about the sorts of things that are happening and not happening in their own lives. Are we living in an impulse society, a narcissistic bubble controlled by short-term interests, instant gratification and greed? Hello, how are you? And you're very welcome to Talking Books. I'm Susan Cahill. It's lovely to have your company this evening. Well, on tonight's show, we're going to meet with one of America's most provocative, insightful and courageous non-fiction writers, Paul Roberts, the best-selling author of The End of Oil and The End of Food, and unpack some of the ideas and arguments put forward in his heady new book, The Impulse Society, What's Wrong With Getting What We Want, where Paul argues... The irony of the Impulse Society is that for all the emphasis on pleasure and gratification, the main output seems to be anxiety. Most of us understand, if only at gut level, that a culture geared for short-term self-interest is a disaster waiting to happen. There comes a time when an individual has to decide the kind of life they want to live and the kind of work they want to do. And it's absolutely the case that many of us, in fact, more and more of us every day, don't necessarily have that option. We are just trying to keep our head above water. But many of us will at, at some point have the opportunity, and some of us, like in Marcy's case, have that opportunity quite often to choose to operate in the world in, in, in a different way, to choose to do different work, and to make that work based on values that are a little deeper than the ones that are too often promoted today. This is a show about anger and inequality, satisfaction and control, quick fixes, impulse patterns, personal agendas, and defeating the me-centred economy. So how did we get into this mess anyway? And how do we dig ourselves out? How did entire societies that once celebrated their prudence, unity and concern for the future become so impulsive, self-centred and short-sighted? Well, let's get straight into the conversation and meet with writer and journalist Paul Roberts. Hello, my name is Paul Roberts. I'm an American author. I've written three books at this point. 
Um, the first one was on the oil industry. It was called The End of Oil. The second was on the food industry, and it was called The End of Food. And my last book is on culture more broadly, and it's called The Impulse Society. Paul, I'm going to start off with a quote that you reference in the book from Bill McKibben, the American environmentalist. I find it very provocative. It also made me laugh, but it also, when in the context of what you're writing, um, was very, very troubling. Bill says nobody ever made money from humility. Well, that's right. And I think that really sums up some of the, uh, the sentiment that I was really going after. We live in a culture that is very good at uh, the art of self-promotion. And think about it, uh, children are encouraged and, and instructed in that art from a very young age through social media. You know, we post things online and we learn to talk about ourselves in a very systematic way. I mean, compare if I, I'm, you know, in my 50s, but if I were to try to do what kids do routinely on Facebook, if I were to try to do that when I was going to high school, think about it. I would have had to get up early in the morning. I would have had to find a camera and take pictures of my breakfast, my pets, you know, myself getting dressed, a selfie. I would have had to find a way to develop those photos that day and make a bunch of copies. And then I would have to have walked around to all my schoolmates before class, handing them out pictures of myself and saying at each point, like me, like me, like me. Now, I don't know about where you went to high school, but if I had tried to do that, I would have gotten punched every time I did that. And yet it's become a standard practice for not just children, but everyone. So we live in a society that, that is all about self-promotion, and there's a large sector, large industrial sector, that profits from that. You know, and there are certainly some benefits from a, a society like that. You know, people can communicate more readily. They can let their friends and uh, acquaintances know what's going on in their lives. But one of the downsides is that we learn to focus solely on ourselves to become sort of de facto narcissists. And I don't think that a society of narcissists is a society that can, you know, ultimately last very long. Yeah, you say narcissism is great for starting relationships, lousy for keeping them. If you want to create the perfect consumer society, what you want, you want people who are anxious, arrogant and entitled. That's powerful now. And that's really the formula for success for a lot of consumer marketers. You know, we, we've known for you know almost a century that one of the key strategies for a consumer marketer is to find ways to promote a sense of anxiety among their customers. And if you, if you feel anxious, then you can be offered a product to alleviate that anxiety. The problem is, of course, that the product is designed to alleviate that anxiety only temporarily, at which point uh, anxiety resurfaces and you need another, another solution. Do you think we are defining ourselves through consumption and online media? The Impulse Society obviously looks at the problem of narcissism in the world and the values that it creates. I'm just wondering within all of that, how is that related to our patterns of consumption? Well, I mean, more broadly, you know, the idea is that the economy gets better and better at delivering satisfaction to the self. And, and you know, whether we're talking about the digital economy or, you know, the, the food industry, more and more what marketing is about is delivering personal satisfaction, oftentimes in products that are tailored to your individual preferences, and delivering that satisfaction quickly. You know, so, so we have an economy that is becoming really more and more shaped around the self. And in advanced economies, and increasingly in the developing world, 
those are the sorts of products and experiences and services that consumers expect. They expect that the consumer market is going to essentially bend around them. So you have this, on the one hand, this sort of industrialized narcissism that is growing more and more intense. The problem there is it's not simply related to individuals. You'll find that this same pattern of delivering rapid satisfaction has also become the pattern across the economy. So you'll see the same sorts of intensified pursuit of self-interest in, say, the finance sector, you know, where entire where banks and other financial institutions now orient their strategies around the pursuit of short-term gain. And we have a great demonstration of how badly that can go awry. You can see the same pattern, the same pursuit of, of short-term self-interest in our research uh, institutions. You can see it in the way we pursue health. You can see it in the way that we design our cities. Too often we are emphasizing the, the short-term pursuit of gain and we are losing the capacity to plan and commit long-term. So it's as if this, this impulse pattern, this sort of narcissism that's being encouraged in the individual has sort of bled over and has become a pattern that now governs much of the rest of society as well. So you're saying that it's not just symptomatic of a generation, that it's permeating everything. So it's our health systems, it's our policy making, it's at our governmental level, economic systems, education. It's, it's, so it's not an isolated phenomenon. It's very troubling and it presents lots of different, very challenging questions. Now, you open the book on a very dramatic note. You give the story of Brett Walker. He was a 29-year-old gaming addict. I think his particular addiction was to World of Warcraft. And he started therapy in a clinic in Seattle called Restart, which is America's first technology rehab for gaming addicts. And his story is particularly disturbing and unsettling because you say that his endless hours of playing on World of Warcraft left him physically weak and as such socially isolated that he couldn't actually handle one-to-one contact. That's frightening when we look at the social costs, isn't it? But it's a reality that we have to face, isn't it? It is frightening. I mean, I chose that story because it seemed very emblematic. You know, there, there is this subpopulation of people who are gamers, and, and, and unfortunately many of them are locked in this world where they are really cut off from reality in many respects. But I also felt that there, there was an analogy there between much of the rest of the world, which is increasingly locked into these personal realities, these bubbles, if you will, where we're, be, we're being given quick satisfaction, satisfaction that's often tailored to our preferences, but sadly satisfaction that is often separate from the lives of others. So more and more we're being, we're being persuaded that we can have the things we want, that we can you know, have the pleasures, that we can you know, pursue you know, our livelihoods. We can fill the hours of our day on our own, in our own little bubbles, if you will. And we're in some respects being given fewer and fewer opportunities to engage meaningfully with the broader community. And I don't think that a society can last long when it's its members, its citizens aren't engaged with one another, at least, you know, to some degree. Now, Paul, one of the the questions that you do pose, and it's a very tricky one because it's very hard to actually even get your head around, let alone find a solution to, you question how we can cope with a socioeconomic system that is almost too good at giving us what we want. 
in all of that, how do we how do we stop being controlled by all our impulses when the very economic systems that we're living in are doing that and doing it beautifully? That is the, you know, one trillion dollar question. I mean, if you are looking at, say, uh, the rise of Amazon, for example, here's a company that has really figured out how to deliver satisfaction efficiently and, and quickly and cheaply. And so it's, in our interest, our personal interest, our personal short-term interest to shop on Amazon. And yet, if you look at the book industry, the more that we shop on Amazon and, and other um, online providers, the harder it is for some of the smaller bookshops, the smaller the local independently owned bookshops to survive. Now, when we lose a bookshops, oftentimes we only realize after the fact that that bookshop was, was, was selling more than books. It was providing more than books. It was providing often a meeting place. It was providing a place where people could get together and discuss books, could be in the company of other book lovers. It was providing some of these social goods that we don't necessarily think of as goods until they're gone. And yet we've done that. We've done that to ourselves. So people who might have really been interested in a bookshop around the corner were also the same people who were shopping on Amazon because it was so convenient and cheap. So yes, we are constantly provided with these opportunities to undermine our own long-term self-interest. The solution, if there is, is, is awareness. I mean, you can look at over the past few years, you know, I gave the example of bookshops in trouble, and that has been the trend for the last decade. The good news is that over the last several years, we've seen a recovery of sorts among some of the smaller bookshops. In some cases, it's because they've become better marketers. They're offering more than just books. They're really trying to cast themselves as as meeting places in a neighborhood. But I think a big part of that is a recognition on the part of some consumers that if they want to keep this, in this case, a sort of a meeting place, a social good in their neighborhood, they're going to have to make some sacrifices in terms of perhaps not always getting the massive discount uh, of buying um, online books. In other words, recognizing they might have to pay a little bit to keep this public good, this social good in their neighborhood. I think that that sort of pattern is beginning to show up. It's breaking out across society in all sorts of different ways. And I think it stems in part from an awareness, a dawning awareness among people that they don't want to live in an impulse society. They don't want to live in a society that is governed, that is defined by the you know, constant pursuit of short-term self-interest. They want a society that does provide social goods and that can take care of its people long-term. One of the challenges, of course, is that to really defeat the impulse society and, and to put our society on track to be more long-term and sustainable, you have to have a political system that can, first of all, grasp the problem, and second begin rolling out some solutions. And, and, and sadly, we live in a, a political system, particularly in the United States, but it's showing up elsewhere, that is the quintessence of the impulse society. It is all about delivering short-term self-interest to voters, or at least pretending that really complicated problems can be solved you know, with short-term quick-hit solutions. I mean, our, the campaign that we're in the middle of right now is a, a really sort of horrendous example of that. You have politicians promising outrageous things that simply cannot be delivered. Let's build a wall between the United States and Mexico. Well, that will never happen. And yet that is being offered as a solid campaign platform. And and unfortunately, that is too often the way that the political system has redefined itself. So we have our work cut out for us, but we also have the beginnings of a movement that is interested in doing that work. 
But Paul, if you want to beat the impulse society, as you say, you have to completely reform the economic system. I know that you say that the economic system is wired for abundance and that you argue that the entire marketplace has become more attuned to the mechanics of the South. And one of the examples you give is Apple. And you say that it has achieved its success by positioning itself in the very centre of the me-centred economy. You know, challenging big players, economic system, we live in a globalised world. It's almost so overwhelming to even conceive that. How do you actually go about reforming it? Well, because I, I think that those players are always going to be there. I mean, the apples of the world aren't going away. And, you know, they deliver, they, they essentially deliver tools. And those tools, you know, those tools are frankly amazing. I mean, they can do some incredible things. So I, I wouldn't want to even hint at the idea that, you know, we should be doing away with these things. I think that, you know, it's, it's how we use those tools. It's how we think about those tools. For, you know, the, the fact that we spend too much time with our iPhone, for example. That's really the problem. It's not the iPhone itself. So I think it's coming up with a different idea of what these tools are and and what they're used for and what they shouldn't be used for. I mean, right now, we don't really sit down with our kids, I think, as often as we should and say, you know, your mom and I are going to buy you this smartphone, which is a, an extremely powerful tool. You know, it has more power in it than you could have found in, in the world's you know, entire computer supply 30 years ago, you know, or, or maybe 40 years ago. But the point being that it, you have in your small hand an enormous amount of power, and it's power to do some great things, but it's also power to really undermine you as a socially engaged human being. So if we're going to give you this power, we, we should provide some instructions with it. We haven't really reached the point as a society where we um, are ready to sort of give those kinds of instructions or even know what they are. So I think that's one step, is to recognize the power of the tools that we have a related point would be to have a broader discussion about what are the things that we as citizens really want. And it's tough to have that at a national level. You know, as as I was discussing before, the political system, the national political system, makes it very difficult to have any sort of a meaningful conversation that's not simply undermined by sound bites. I think where this conversation really needs to take place is at the local level. Mm. And I'll give you an example. The you know in the United States, there's a there's been a huge surge in popularity of in local food. So whether we're talking about farmers markets or community supported agriculture, and what's important about that success is that it's not simply being driven by the fact that people like local food or they like fresh produce, both of which are true. But there are, there's more motivation behind it. I think once people start going to say a farmers market and they start interacting with the people who are actually producing their food suddenly they begin to recognize that there is this connection between the consumer and the producer that they might not have really thought about. They recognize there are actually people out there, uh, you know, producing this food, and that those people, in order to keep producing this lovely local food, will require consumers who are willing to pay perhaps a little bit extra for that higher quality food. There is this connection made between a pleasure that the consumer is receiving from that food and the real lives of the producers. And that's a connection that we don't make typically in the consumer marketplace. In fact, you walk into the store and you're essentially asked not to think about the producer of the food. You're asked not to think, what's the company that makes this food? You're simply to think about the pleasure you're going to achieve consuming that food. So the point is that you have a local endeavor, in this case, local food production, that invites people in through the senses and then 
educates them as to the way that they are connected with this broader community. Those sorts of experiences, I think, are critical. What about the jobs market, Paul? Because it seems to me that we're living in very insecure, anxious times where you're very frustrated workplaces, very compromised workplaces. And that in some respect that we are doing everything in our in our powers to actually eliminate labour, eliminate the professions, eliminate all the middle people. And where do we want the economy and the workplace and the labour force to go? That's a, that's a crisis level problem in the sense that we are eliminating jobs and we're eliminating uh, the kinds of jobs that used to make it easier to live a middle class existence. You know, the, the effects of automation and globalization on mid-wage jobs are, are well documented. And I think that it's forcing us to recognize, and you'll see this beginning to seep into the literature and some of the writing that's been done on this. Um, a lot of experts are coming to this conclusion that we can't continue to pursue automation as rapidly as we are without having these massive effects on jobs. You simply can't automate a whole class of jobs away and not expect there to be massive economic effects on the workers who have just had their jobs automated away. So we're, as a society, we're being forced to confront the fact that what we used to call progress now comes with costs that are getting larger and larger. I mean, it used to be that when you automated a job out of existence, the same technology that automated the job provided another job. I mean, if your job on the assembly line was replaced by a robot, you could get a job fixing the robot. So that there was this constant, what we call creative destruction. Jobs were destroyed, but new jobs and often better jobs were created. We're not seeing that creative destruction at the same rates that we used to. Sure, there are lots of jobs that, you know, in the computer industry, in the IT industry that pay well, but we're not creating enough of new jobs in that sector to replace the ones that the IT industry is also eliminating. The first step toward addressing it is to even acknowledge that it exists, and that's just beginning because up until the last decade, you could not have made that argument without being called a Luddite. Well, what about looking at what type of wealth we should be producing? I know you you mentioned a story about an architect called Marcy, and I found her story particularly inspiring. Can you tell me about her and how she has looked at the wealth in her skills and right. looked at how she can contribute to bettering society in some way? So Marcy was a, is a, a longtime friend of mine, and she was an architect, a, a gifted architect, and was a rising star at a firm in uh, Seattle. And she realized that, first of all, the economy and the way the market was going meant that the work that she was doing, she was delivering clients sort of this short-term, not, she didn't feel it was very high-quality work because everyone was about cutting costs. And it was, it was very unsatisfying to her. And at the same time, she was doing volunteer work where she was showing, she was taking kids on these architectural tours of downtown Seattle and watching their eyes light up as they learned the sort of the hidden meanings behind some of these buildings they were seeing. And she, said, she had this revelation. She realized that she could probably do more good and certainly a kind of good that was more satisfying to her if she gave up this idea of a, you know, a high-earning job or at least made, you know, stopped having that be the priority and focused more on things that were more people-oriented. And you know, she became a teacher. So she quit this high-level job, went back to school, became a teacher, and now is not only a teacher, but she also helps other teachers become more effective educators. The point is that there comes a time when an individual has to decide the kind of life they want to live and the kind of work they want to do. And 
it's absolutely the case that many of us, in fact, more and more of us every day, don't necessarily have that option. We are just trying to keep our head above water. But many of us will at, at some point have the opportunity, and some of us, like in Marcy's case, have that opportunity quite often to choose to operate in the world in, in, in a different way, to choose to do different work, and to make that work based on values that are a little deeper than the ones that are too often promoted today. Takes huge Actually, imagination though, Paul, because we're grinded down in the realities of paying mortgages and right. and education fees and keeping ourselves well. So to take that, not necessarily risk, but to take that leap of faith, if you will, is it takes some hell of imagination and some bravery. And the world is not doesn't necessarily support that. Well, it, it's absolutely the case, and, and, and I think, you know, my point was that not everyone is in a position to even consider taking a leap like that, you know, so that there is a, a small but important class of people who have the education and the earning power where they can make a difference and, and, and where they could choose to, to, to operate differently. And, and in many cases, those are people who have the tools, the education, the access, to really make a difference if they chose to. Suppose they I see think the big that, picture in terms of how they can contribute. Well, I mean, but that you, comes it, from it, privilege. Absolutely. So I, I'm talking about a sort of a small subclass. I think that, you know, you have people who are, you know, whether we're talking about Bill Gates or other IT people who've made a boatload of money and then are deciding, hmm, I made a lot of money and it's great, but some of the ways that I was allowed to make money they aren't contributing to a, a more stable long-term society, and they're trying to make a difference through various initiatives. I think that that's a, a fairly small group. It's an important group. There are you know, people like Marcy who are in the professions who have the capacity, once again, the option, the comfort, if you will, to be able to choose to work differently. I think for, the, for many other people, the opportunities come in much smaller ways. It's the opportunity, for example, to support a local bookstore instead of automatically going to Amazon. It's the opportunity to become involved in your school system. I mean, I point out in the book that one of the ways that people, one of the opportunities that people have to re-engage in their communities is when they take their kids to school. Because, you know, so often that's your first introduction as an adult to the public school system where you recognize some of the strengths, but also some of the weaknesses. And the impulse society would sort of urge you to demand a quick fix, to, to rail against, say, the board members of the school or the teachers and say, why aren't you doing this perfectly? The pushback against the impulse society would say, wow, the school system needs help. You know, it needs the support of parents. It needs us to become involved and not simply stand on the sidelines and, and, and throw bricks. And so there's this opportunity to become involved and to engage in a way that, you know, is sort of anti-impulse society, if you will. And those are the sorts of opportunities. I mean, it's not going to change the world in and of itself. It's not even going to change your community, but it, it does two things. One, it provides the beginning, that engagement and the support that you provide your school in this example can eventually lead to good things. It can lead to reform. It can lead to change. As important, simultaneously, it is bringing you as the individual out of that sort of narcissistic bubble that we talked about. But the next Steve Jobs, as you say, or the next Bill Gates or whoever it is, is not necessarily going to look at the world in how they're a contribution to the world in a socially productive way. Is there an element of idealism there that these mavericks are going to look at the big picture? And going to care about the big picture. Well, of, of course. But the thing is, if we simply wait for the market to produce 
a savior or a solution, it's not going to happen. You know, there's this uh, you know idea that's that's beginning to get some currency called the moral economy, and it's where you recognize that if you simply go for the lowest cost product and you and you allow cost to be your sole determinant, your most important criteria, none of these problems are going to get solved. If you instead put back in the idea of a moral consumer, a moral decision maker, you, you know, who is perhaps idealistic, who believes that his or her purchasing decisions can make a difference then you begin to have some hope. You know, we've spent the last 30 or 40 years trying to convince ourselves that you simply need to have a free market and allow individuals to pursue self-interest, and the, the best, most efficient outcome will emerge by itself without any sort of social or government intervention. You know, as if, you know, Adam Smith were, were running the world. But the truth is that Adam Smith and some of his fellow thinkers of the Enlightenment never imagined a world where we simply were guided by self-interest. There was always a moral component. There were always, it was always the expectation that we would operate in this marketplace as moral beings, you know, making decisions that were not simply based on finding the most the low cost, but also uh, based on the idea that we were we were interacting, we were trading with another human being who had similar ideas and needs and concerns. If we don't sort of re-engage with that notion of a moral economy and of moral consumption, then there's really no hope. And, and my point, I think, with some of these examples that we've talked about is that people are willing to re-engage on a moral level. It's, it's tough because then my idea of a moral economy is, very, is likely very different from yours. It's a conversation that we'd rather not have because it's complicated and messy. But if we don't have those kinds of conversations about the sort of world we want to live in, about the sort of market we want to operate in, um, again, these problems don't get solved. So there's no easy solution. I think the, the takeaway from, from this book, I hope, is that you don't solve the impulse society by coming up with another impulse solution, another short-term solution. It's going to involve some idealism because that's, that's what humans do. That's their potential. They can be idealists. They can work toward an ideal world. We may never get there. We probably won't. But if we don't try and we don't believe that it's good to try, we're lost.
on News Talk 106 to 108. And you're very welcome back to Talking Books. I'm Susan Cowell. It's great to have your company this evening. Well, on tonight's show, we're meeting with award-winning journalist and author Paul Roberts, known to most through his best-selling books, The End of Oil and The End of Food. Well, Paul's latest book, The Impulse Society, What's Wrong With Getting What We Want, has just been published by Bloomsbury. And I have to say, it's stirring stuff. This is a remarkable book. It's ambitious, intelligent, perceptive and superbly written, where Paul presents a frightening analysis of the me-centred economy and examines its catastrophic psychological, moral and social consequences. In The Impulse Society, Paul writes, we fine-tune our moods with pharmaceuticals and classic rock, craft our meals around our allergies and ideologies, customise our bodies with cross-training, with ink and metal, with surgery and wearable technologies. We can choose a vehicle to represent our hipness, our hostility. We can move to a neighbourhood that matches our social values, find a news outlet that mirrors our politics, create a social network that likes everything we say or post. With each transaction and upgrade, each choice and click, life moves closer to us and the world becomes our world. Yes, not exactly your relaxing bedtime read, but required reading nonetheless. Now, one of the themes that Paul develops in the Impulse Society is how the brain understands cash and credit. So, for example, how a blackjack player perceives loss. Now, this is where it gets really interesting. Paul writes, gamblers, when their luck turns sour, often exhibit a behavioural tick known as loss aversion. He says it's a kind of a survival type of thing and writes in studies involving gambling, subjects perceive loss to be twice as large as wins, even though the losses and wins involve the same amount of money. I think that really says it all. Well, it does, it does really get at the neurological basis. We're, we're individuals who were designed, you know, tens of thousands of years ago, really. The environment that we were sort of built to, to thrive in punished people who, who lost things. You know, and we're designed to be quite averse to it. In fact, we, our brains produce uh, the, the sort of the, the neurochemical that, that creates the sensation of disgust whenever we lose something. And if you think about it, that plays right into the credit world that we live in. The human mind looks at credit much differently than it looks at cash. When I spend cash on something, I have a feeling, a mild feeling of disgust because I'm giving up something. I'm losing an asset of mine. When I spend something with credit, my mind doesn't recognize that as loss. And so, in fact, it's interesting because if, you know, I buy something with a credit, I'm much less likely to even remember the amount that I've just spent. However, if I buy something with cash, the same, the same product at the store, I'm, I have a much better chance of remembering the exact amount that I just paid. So we're sort of wired the wrong way for a world in which credit has become, you know, really the dominant means of paying for things. And certainly some of the credit companies and, the, and uh, you know, many other consumer product companies exploit this. But again, you know, this awareness is beginning to seep into the broader conversation. And uh, you know, behavioral economics has become a um, credible field now, and that's the, essentially that branch of, of economics where we bring in some of this psychology and we begin to you know, show consumers, here's why you keep making the same sorts of economic mistakes. Here's why uh, spending with a credit card can be high risk to your personal finances. So again, it's a question of bringing awareness back into the equation and giving the consumer the, the power to see what's really going on. 
how do we take the self though out of the marketplace? Like, I, I know that's kind of a crazy question, but if we are societies radically dissolving in so many different ways, how do we move outside all this self-interest and look at the community and and build upon those values? I think that we don't ever try to take the self out. I mean, I think we have to, again, go back to some of the enlightenment. When I mean by self there, I mean by that greed and that sense of personal entitlement. Right. I think that that greed, though, it didn't just happen to us. You know, we are by nature a self-interested species, and that's how we stay alive. I think that you know, Alex de Tocqueville or others would have argued, and these are, you know, sort of the, the 18th century thinkers who were beginning to ask, you know, how is it that self-interested people can survive in a society? And the answer was that they pursued what he called enlightened self-interest. They recognized that their self-interest overlapped with the self-interests of others, and that you were unable to survive if you weren't at least mindful of the way that your agendas overlapped or conflicted with those of your neighbors and that you were better off and more able to pursue your self-interest if you engaged with your community, if you, you know, worked together to, say, raise the barn or to collaborate in mutual defense, if you, you know, adhered to laws along with your neighbors. The point being that it was essential to understand the way that your self-interest was not separate from the self-interest of others. The challenge in today's world is that we have come up in an economy, a consumer economy, that tries to persuade us that we don't need to be concerned about where our self-interest ends and the self-interest of someone else begins. And that, too, is a, is, it's not a permanent change. It's more a question of awareness. Finding ways to remind our citizens of where their self-interest overlaps with those of others, that's a, a, you know, an absolutely critical thing here. And it's something that I believe has to begin you know, with children in young children in terms of how they're raised by their parents and also the sorts of things we teach in schools. Well, let me put this another way, Paul. How do we challenge the status quo? And what I mean by that is in terms of not necessarily trying to stop the market, but stop the market creeping into all areas of our private life and absorbing us in so many different ways that we've lost our moral focus. Well, I think, you know, I, again, I think it's a, it's, a, it's a question of choice. I mean, the worst case scenario and the one that perhaps we're headed toward is that we don't do anything about that. We don't try to stop the market from, you know, penetrating ever more deeply into, you know, our private lives and uh, our, you know, sort of day-to-day activities and our thoughts. And that's, I believe, the way that we're headed if we don't do something. I mean, the alternative to that, though, is to argue that, all right, we're never going to be free of of a society that's at least partially narcissistic, but there is always the opportunity for individuals to change the way that they and their friends and family operate. And I don't think we, you know, we certainly can't wait for the political system to change our economy for us. I think it has to start with individuals. You know, so I wish I could say, well, you need, you know, you need